When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. You are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve Jay. Today we're speaking with David Cantwell about his book, Merle Haggard, The Running Kind. We first started talking with David and talked about the Ken Burns series, Country Music, as a warm-up, and that conversation went so many places and was so much fun it got its own episode. But this episode will focus on David's excellent take on the hag in his book, Merle Haggard, The Running Kind. So welcome again, David. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I really enjoyed your book. I was struck by the fact that it's more of a biography of Merle's songs and songwriting as much as the man. And you actually called it a monograph of the man's music. What is it that you wanted to accomplish with the book? I don't consider The Running Kind to be a biography of Merle Haggard's life. He's written two autobiographies. What my book was trying to do was to instead sort of do a biography of his music, a biography of his catalog. My sense going into it, uh, it was published in 2013. It's part of the American Music Series out of the University of Texas Press. I think the first two books in the series were Don McLeese's book on uh, Dwight Yoakam, and then there was a, a Ryan Adams book by David Minconi. David Minconi was one of the series editors at that time. And so anyway, he and Peter Blackstock, the other series editor at the time, uh, reached out to me and said, who do you want to do? My first thought was Cash. They came back with what I should have told myself, <laughs> which was that there's already a lot of cash books. My God, there's a lot of cash books, right? There's there's a there's an entire long library shelf full of Johnny Cash books. Merle Haggard, I think along with Dolly Parton, Merle Haggard is the most accomplished and significant modern country artist, probably the best singer and the best songwriter that country has seen in in my lifetime. But I didn't think he had the widespread acclaim. He wasn't considered an artist of greatness alongside the people who he should be next to, by which I mean it, Haggard is not just great among country stars. He's a great American artist, period. He should be mentioned alongside Charlie Chaplin, the Gershwins, Louis Armstrong and Elvis Presley, Dylan and John Ford, the filmmaker, and you know whoever you would put on that list. And he didn't get that. So I wanted to shine a light on a career that was fascinating and that had oftentimes interacted with the headlines, the national headlines. You could talk about America. You can't not talk about America when you talk about Merle Haggard. You noted that you wanted to engage the character that Haggard and his audience created. Can you explain that? What's the difference between the character and Merle or, you know, Merle's perception of himself? 
Well, that gets back to this idea of authenticity and realness that we're talking about. And I think the basic perception of Merle among both his detractors and his fans is that, well, he's just this kind of basic... He's the poet of the working man, right? And that he just is simple and writes what he feels and what he's seen. There you go. Another hit record. (laughs) He's an artist. And so I really wanted to focus on that quality in him, the fact that he's not just taking shorthand from his from his heart. He's actually making artistic choices. The most famous example of that distinction between the real Haggard biography and the persona he presents in his songs is in uh, Mama Tried, you know, I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. As he'd said many times, I did turn 21 in prison, but I was only doing, you know, three to seven years or whatever the, the sentence was. But that, he couldn't get that to rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> And so he makes the artistic choice of going with life without parole because he can get the rhyme, but also because it's more dramatic. And it's that kind of distinction that I wanted to emphasize. Another good example of that is with, you know, the song that's most obviously associated with him is Okie from Muskogee. Well, Haggard wasn't technically an Okie in the sense that he didn't actually move from the American Southwest to California. He was born in the Promised Land. He was born in California to parents who were Okies. He was called an Okie and treated in the classist and oppressive way that Okies were treated at that time in California. So as I note in the book, you know, it would have been more accurate not to say he's an Okie from Muskogee, but that I'm proud to be the son of an Okie from the Chicota area of Oklahoma. Again, hard to rhyme, probably. But that, yeah, it doesn't sing well. That song would be adopted by a lot of conservative America, that and Fight Inside of Me. In the later years, Merle would kind of struggle with the intent of the song, right? Or at least try and change the intent? As he's told the story, the reason that song was written in the first place is that they were driving through Oklahoma. This would have been in, you know, 1969, early in 69 sometime. Probably were all passing around a joint among themselves. On the tour bus, someone saw a sign that said Muskogee 15 miles or whatever, and someone joked, it's usually attributed to his drummer, I bet they don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. And everyone thought that was pretty funny and laughed about it and started coming up with other things they don't do in Muskogee. The people that are kind of being made fun of are the people who live in Muskogee. They're not as worldly and wise as the Merle Haggard and his strangers on the tour bus and who do do many of these things that are described in the song and aren't as parochial and hidebound as presumably the people in Muskogee are. But when he began to play it out, he noticed that that's not how the audience was responding at all. They were embracing it as an earnest, unironic testament of the values to which they held dear and the way of life that they appreciated and wanted to endure. I think very quickly, although the song may have started out as sort of a, as a joke and maybe even as sort of a making fun of where you came from joke, uh, it turned into a song that was embracing where you came from joke, and or not a joke, not a joke at all. And he was torn between that throughout his entire career. He's given a million explanations for what that song means. He's actually said that uh, more than once. He's saying, you know, I think there's, there's at least 32 meanings or whatever number he chose, just a random number that he meant to mean a lot. And he's felt some ambivalence about it, I think. Simon, a documentary or television series once, and he's, he and Willie Nelson are talking about it expressing a little bit of ambivalence about the song and that, you know, it's this is the song that I'm most known for and sometimes I get sick of that old song and, and Willie says, well, if you don't want it, I'll take it. <laughs> There's one songwriter to another recognizing that although we have a lot of political associations and polarized political associations with Oki, 
that's game recognizing game, right? That's that's Willie Nelson, the great songwriter, saying no. I, I recognize that that's a great song. It's not just what the song's about. It's the catchiness of it and the cleverness of it that has made it stick with people all these years. So the other the song that it's associated with is Fight Inside of Me. Right. I think that Okie from Muskogee is vague enough that it allows you to sort of take whatever side you want. If you want to embrace it, you can embrace it. If you want to think it's looking down on other people, you can do that too. If you want to experience ambivalence when you listen to it, which is what I do, <laughs> then you do that. But Fight Inside was a completely different, there was no ambiguity. That was completely America, love it or leave it. That was taking sides. It was drawing a line in the sand and daring you to step across. So I think what happened in part was that it sort of shaped or um, it limited the way we hear Oki from Muskogee. With that as the song that came after it, immediately after it. So we hear Oki from Muskogee in the context of Fight Inside of Me. If, on the other hand, Merle had released the song that he wanted to release originally, which was the interracial romance song, Irma Jackson, mm -hmm. which is a song that wouldn't come out to the public for many years later, that was the record he wanted to put out next. Capitol and his producer, Ken Nelson, talked him out of it. But if he had released Irma Jackson, I think we would have heard Oki from Muskogee with a lot more generosity, and we would have heard more of the humor in it. We, it would have reframed Oki for us in a way that's very different from the way that the fight inside of me wound up focusing it. Right, right. Well, let's talk about some of his songs then, because your book spends a lot of time on the songs, actually. And one of my favorites, and one that led me to explore Mara Haggard, was Via the Grateful Dead and Mama Tried. That song, you know, the genesis that you tell in your book, it was music for a film starring, of all people, Dick Clark. Yeah. And, and yet that song becomes kind of a cornerstone of outlaw country, and, and it's just a weird genesis. Here we go again, right? So you would think that why is uh, Merle writing this song about being in prison, ruefully remembering the mother who tried to make sure he didn't wind up in prison? And you would think, well, that you know must be, that's real, that's authentic. But actually, he was commissioned to write music for a Dick Clark-produced and starring film called The Killer's Three. The Killers 3 was a film that is clearly sort of trying to write on the coattails of Bonnie and Clyde, which uh, came out the year before. It's about these three young people who uh, decide they're going to pull off a bank job in a small town. One of them is played by Dick Clark, who in the story may be gay, maybe not. And spoiler alert, Merle actually is also in the film, and he plays a cop, <laughs> which is, you know, which is not outlaw at all, right? But I think he either is shot by Dick Clark. I think maybe Dick Clark kills him. It has a good beat. You can dance to it either way. <laughs> and he wrote a couple of other songs for the film. Um, I think it's just called Killer's Three Theme or Theme to Killer's Three, which plays periodically throughout the film, narrating the action. Mm -hmm. But the other song that he wrote for it was Mama Tried, which clearly he's drawing from his own life experience there. But he's, it's also done trying to fit it into this film that bombed. <laughs> <laughs> But it's definitely worth, you know, an hour and 20 minutes just for its oddness. Well, you've got my agenda sketched out for the next day or two. <laughs> the Fugitive is a great song, and that also has a genesis in, in a 60s TV series. It was, you know, iconic. It ties so well into the, the character that Haggard was becoming. It was written by Liz Anderson, who was uh, is a great country songwriter, uh, co-written with her husband, Casey Anderson. They were taking a road trip sometime in the middle 60s and came across a Native American uh, memorial site, and the little the placard that was there to explain what it was about said that uh, their only crop that the Native Americans grew, as far as the white people who lived there perceived it, was children. And the line, 
uh, while mom had prayed my crops would fail, popped into her head. And by the time they got to Vegas or Reno or wherever they were headed, they had written The Fugitive. They'd incorporated elements of the popular David Jansen television series that uh, down every road there's always one more city is kind of suggestive of the episodic nature of the television series. Every week David Jansen goes to a different town, has a different almost caught moment, goes on to the next one. So it was about someone who's in trouble with the law and has to keep one step ahead of the law. And they played it for Merle. They had no idea that he'd been in prison at that point. It was to, Merle was, had had a few uh, successful records, but his prison years were not public knowledge. I think he said his hair stood up on his neck, and he couldn't believe that somebody was singing this song because it seemed like it was such a perfect fit with how he perceived himself. And uh, later on, in fact, he wrote, Someone Told My Story in a Song. And I always think that uh, that's a song that's inspired by his feelings when Liz Anderson sang that song to him. You know, one of the ones also that is it's just both brutal and beautiful and draws from his prison experience is Sing Me Back Home. Yeah, it's such a, such a great, great record. I forget the, uh, the critic who wrote this, but I think it was reviewed in, in Life magazine or maybe even in Rolling Stone at the time. And the, the critic you know, said, this, is, this kind of record should be a pop hit. If the pop stations would play it, it would be a pop hit right now. It has that kind of catchiness. It deals with kinds of existential questions and crises, although it's about you know, someone getting ready to meet their maker in the electric chair. It still is universal. There was a moment in the late 60s before Fight Inside of Beast solidified him as a particular type. He's a gorgeous man, right? He had movie star looks, right? And he had the great songs and the great records that could have made him a pop star in that moment in the same way that, for example, Glenn Campbell became a pop star or Johnny Cash did. Didn't work out that way. You got to explain this to me. Interestingly, you say that that song would segue best with Otis Redding's Dock of the Bay. And I find that really fascinating. I'm talking about in terms of my dream version of a top 40 format in that moment. So if you listen to those two records back to back, I mean, it's not jarring the difference between one to the other. They fit sonically. That's the first thing that I would say. But I also think that they both are just about people who are in these moments of transition and who are contemplating what the point of it all is. It would have been fun to have heard Otis and Merle have a couple of beers and talk about the big questions. Because I think, I think both of them were like, they lived in their heads a lot. They were very thoughtful. But again, I don't want to uh, push it so far that, it's, that it sounds like Merle is just once again, you know, writing down his biography. There's something about the situation that's described in Sing Me Back Home. There's a character who is in prison waiting to be sentenced and asks someone else to sing them a song. That is straight out of Pennies from Heaven, the original film from the late 30s that includes the song Pennies from Heaven, a song that Merle knew well. He recorded it twice during his career. It stars Bing Crosby. Merle was a huge Crosby fan. In the film, someone is being taken to death row, and they say, could you take me by uh, Bing Crosby's cell? and have him sing me a song, and I, I need to give him a message. So on the one hand, it's very similar to things that Merle witnessed when he was in San Quentin, but it's also something he witnessed on the movie screen. I don't know which one would be most important to the creation of Send Me Back Home. Right, well, merging those two, that, that is the art, right? Yeah, yes, yes. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. 
Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with David Cantwell, who wrote Merle Haggard, The Running Kind, which is a uh, essential country music document, both the artist and the book. Merle always seemed to be on the run and only hit the road again when he landed somewhere. And he's quoted in your book as saying, every front door has me hoping there's a back door open. Any idea where that restlessness came from? Well, I think being a prisoner in San Quentin <laughs> will do that. <laughs> that might do it. Uh, yeah, that that'd do it. Uh, that that line, uh, "Every front door found me hoping that that there'd be a back door open," is uh, actually from the title track of my book, as it were, "The Running Kind," the song that was a hit for Merle in the late '70s when he was on MCA Records. It's a fantastic record. So I use that as the title of my book, and you know, mention that quote more than once because that seems to be such a driving idea behind a lot of what a lot of Merle Haggard songs. But you got to keep moving. You can't stay somewhere and be caught or trapped. That freedom, freedom is not like something you're striving for. It's something you have as long as you're on the go. And you actually include that song alongside a couple of rock epics, such as the Allman Brothers' Ramblin' Man and Leonard Skinner's Freebird. Hearing what you just said, that makes a lot of sense. So that's a, it's a pretty common trope in a certain sort of romantic version of masculinity in country music, but also in Southern rock and rock generally, this idea that, you know, to be on the go, to be unfettered, unbound, particularly not held back by a woman, is what freedom is about. At the same time, almost all those songs, and Merle's as well, oftentimes present this need to be on the go as something that the singer has no control over. Freebird, for example, Lord knows I can't change. Right, that's the that's the line that he repeats over and over as he tells this woman goodbye. Uh, as Ronnie Van Zant says, "I got to hit the road." And Lord knows I can't change, but it, so if you can't change it, then is it freedom? It seems like the opposite of freedom. It, it seems like a um, a conception of freedom that is its, that is its own trap. And typically, in those kinds of songs, it, it sort of elides that contradiction it acts like that contradiction isn't really a contradiction but merle i think very very often in his work actually presents it as a contradiction i can't help this i have to do it and yet i can't imagine being free without it and those two things sit there kind of uncomfortably beside one another both of them foregrounded that tension between those polar opposite ideas i think is a big part of what haggard's about 
You also mentioned earlier Liz Anderson from one of the songs she wrote. And one of the things I found fascinating were the roles that she, as well as Bonnie Owens, played in you know, creating some of Merle's signature songs, but also in helping him find that voice and character. Yeah, well, Liz and Bonnie teamed up, in fact, to almost sort of kick off his career in terms of being a big hit maker. Bonnie had known Liz a little bit, and Liz Anderson had approached Bonnie Owens. Bonnie was working with him at, at Capitol and singing with him and touring with him a little bit. And they were boyfriend and girlfriend, but not married yet. And so she talked to Liz and said, Merle, we should go listen to this woman's songs. She encouraged him to do it. They go to the Anderson's home, and Merle kind of thinks they're square. They're not cool people. They're dressed like, you know, just normal suburban California Americans. And then uh, Liz uh, gets a bunch of songs that she's written and sits down at, I think, like a pump organ <laughs> in her living room. And so you think that's not a good way to sell songs to Merle Haggard. But she begins to go through these songs, and a lot of those songs, Merle can't believe he's hearing them. One of them is The Fugitive. Another is All My Friends Are Gonna Be Strangers, which becomes one of his first big, big hits. He uses it to name his band, The Strangers. Another of these songs, Just Between the Two of Us, is one of Merle's very first hits. It's a duet with uh, he and Bonnie Owens. The other woman that is very, very important to uh, Haggard's development is his third wife, Leona Williams, who he marries after he divorces Bonnie. In fact, immediately after, Bonnie is like in their wedding, and they were both singing in The Strangers at that time. And she's a fantastic vocalist, still sings, came out with a fantastic Merle Haggard tribute album, if you ever want to track that down. She co-wrote a lot of songs with Merle, wrote some of his early 80s number one hits. She's a co-writer on Someday When Things Are Good. She's fantastic. Just as an aside on Leona Williams, Loretta Lynn, in her biography, Coal Miner's Daughter, talks about how when she was starting out, she had dreams of forming an all-woman backing group. She was going to call them the Lynettes. The one woman she mentions who would be perfect for it is a young guitarist around town and songwriter named Leona Williams. Very few unknown artists get name-checked in Loretta Lynn bios, but Leona was there. The 70s gave us country politan, which had its moments. You just mentioned the 80s, which... It had almost all my favorite moments. It really? Huh. So when I think of 80s, right, so there's the beginning of the decade is the urban cowboy stuff. And Willie Nelson's peak is in the early 80s. Merle is a huge hit maker all through the 80s. You know, there's stuff like Dolly Parton teaming with Kenny Rogers for Islands in the Stream, which I'm a big fan of. But I understand that some people think that's too much or too poppy or too sappy or whatever. And I, I wouldn't disagree that it's any of those things. I just would disagree about the two part. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then in the middle of the decade, there's the great credibility scare. You have the new traditionalists like Randy Travis and Steve Earle and Dwight Yoakam and Keith Whitley and the Judds come up in that era. I don't know. I think the 80s maybe gets a gets a raw deal. But the, So the 90s obviously gave us a resurrection in Johnny Cash's career, as yes. you mentioned, the American recordings. But you write that it, during this time, Merle was, quote, slipping away. Can you elaborate on that? In the 90s... At the, at the very end of the 80s, Merle left Columbia Records, where he'd been for almost the entire decade. There's actually a cash connection to that. Part of the reason he left Columbia is because they had dropped Johnny Cash, and he couldn't believe it. He said, how do you drop Johnny Cash? They don't actually mention Merle's leaving Columbia in the Ken Burns documentary, but they do talk about Columbia dumping cash. So he leaves there and goes to Curb Records. Curb proceeds to 
sit on his albums. Over the course of the 80s, he puts out three Curb albums, uh, none of which are particularly good. They're kind of trying to um, do too much of the Haddock thing. Not that that's a bad thing to do, but maybe it's not a good fit for Merle. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, he just couldn't get his records put out. And then when they were put out, they weren't promoted. No money was spent on them, really. I don't know if you know. He has one album from the 90s. It's called 1994. It's just 1994 in black lettering with a gray background. And then he, he came out with their album a couple of years later. It was called 1996. And it's the flip of that. It's like a gray 1996 with a black background. They almost look like tombstones. The covers do. And uh, anyway, this just infuriated Merle. They wouldn't let him release the singles that he wanted to release. And even when they did release them, he, they fought him on it. When we think of the great Merle music, when I think of it, there's a surprising amount, perhaps other people will be surprised by it, of it that comes from the 21st century. And then there's tons of it from the 80s and the 70s and the 60s. But the 90s, I'm not really sure that I would pick a single track if I got to do a box set, I don't know. I, I suppose I'd put one track on there simply to acknowledge that... He was still alive and working. And <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, though, the 90s are weird because... So, commercially, his career is stalling. He's playing smaller venues. His releases aren't getting on the radio because they're not being promoted to radio. And his records aren't being promoted either, his albums. Uh, at the same time, he is inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. And right around that time, two Merle Haggard tribute albums are released almost simultaneously. But one of them was a very much alternative country tribute to Merle. Mm -hmm. And the other one was a like a hat act, hot new country tribute to Merle. And then just a few years later, I think in 97, the Down Every Road box set comes out. Mm -hmm. Career Spanny box set, which if I were going to recommend one collection for people to track down to begin Merle Haggard, I would say get the Down Every Road box. It makes a case for Merle Haggard that's comparable to the case that Star Time makes for James Brown. It's, it's bedrock <laughs> and foundational for everything that came afterward, as well as being, you know, peak. It's as good as it gets and as important as it gets uh, is the stuff on that collection. In the 90s, there's a lot of attention being paid to Merle at the same time that he is not selling records or getting on the radio, even as his longtime friend Cash is, you know, having his big comeback. Well, Merle would rebound in the new millennium with two of my personal favorite records, both of his and the genres. I think, you know, if, if I Can Only Fly is a beautiful record, near perfect. Yeah, I agree with your assessment. It's, it's maybe his best, it's probably his best album in the 21st century and one of the best of his career. It's, you know, just beautiful. If I Can Only Fly, the title track is, you know, it's a Blaze Foley song that he'd actually been singing back at least since the 80s in various forms. He had never recorded it or at least never released it. You know, heartbreaking. It again comes back to that running kind dilemma. He's sort of associating happiness, contentment with being able to move. And in that song, he can't. Right. If I could only fly, if you could only fly, if we could only fly, then we would be able to achieve. But we can't. <laughs> Right, right. I always associated with an updated uh, "Sing Me Back Home," but I think your comparison is probably more apt. No, but I think that uh, yeah, I think it's in conversation with "Sing Me Back Home" as well. It, it's somebody who uh, who is yearning for something similar, but doesn't have any hope that it's going to happen. Then there's another record which I love, and it's a lot more fun. He followed up with something he did frequently throughout his career with an album of all covers, with "Roots Volume One," and I I love that record. Merle plays fiddle. He does play fiddle. Uh, when he was a young man and first starting to get in trouble after his father died, 
Merle's dad died when he was nine. He be, almost immediately began to run away from home and borrow cars and get in trouble with the law in all kinds of ways, stop going to school. One of the ways that his mother tried to uh, sort of calm him down and ground him was giving violin lessons. They didn't last long. He says he wanted to play in hillbilly tunings, and his teacher was much more traditional than that, and so it didn't work out. But he got I guess he got a little bit of a grounding in it, at least, on the most basic of basics. And then in approximately 1970, he did a tribute album to Western swing legend Bob Wills. It's called The Best Damn Fiddle Player in the World. He learned to play fiddle for that record. Right, but Roots Volume 1 is a fantastic record. He does a lot of Lefty Frizzell covers. Lefty is to Merle what Elvis Presley was to Tanya Tucker. I mean, it's like he is a god. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the person that you would most like to be like. He does beautiful covers of those. He does some Hank Thompson covers. It's a, it's a fantastic, stripped-down kind of record. It's a great record. Is there any chance? Is there a Volume 2 anywhere in the vaults? First of all, I think it was Volume 1 because there was a Volume right. 2, right? But I don't know uh, for sure. I've talked to some people who have closer connections to the Haggard camp. And so, like, there's going to be disputes over who gets to make these decisions. And so I don't, I'm not anticipating anything. I think there's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. in the can. How polished it is, I don't know. But there were periods, particularly in the 90s and through the 21st century, when Merle spent a lot of time in his home studio recording doing the things he wanted to do. And he was always coming up with ideas. One of the times I interviewed him, he mentioned, the next thing I want to do is a Milton Brown tribute. So, and Milton Brown is, he is to Western Swing, like what Bill Monroe is to Bluegrass. He's the father of it. Milton Brown and his musical Brownies is just from the 20s and early 30s. Still guitar player Bob Dunn is in that band. He's a pioneer on that instrument. And it's just fantastic stuff, and that just made that made me so excited because you know he's one of my favorite artists. Brown is, and to have uh, Merle shine a light on that would be fantastic. But I don't know if he ever actually did it. I hope so. If there's not, the albums that uh, he made are pretty good. We're talking to David Cantwell, who wrote the book Merle Haggard: The Running Kind. And David, your book ends, and Merle's still alive and on the uptick. He passes away in 2016. I understand that you're going to be updating your book. Is that right? Yes, yes. I am in the process uh, now of doing a, a revised and expanded version of The Running Kind. So one of the things about the American series, music series at the University of Texas Press at the time I wrote my book, it was in 2013, was that the size of the book was pretty circumscribed. I had 75,000 words. And so as a result, there was plenty of stuff that I left out. Even as I was writing it, I knew, boy, I would like to be able to have a chapter on The Strangers. And instead, I mentioned some of the members of the band, but I didn't really devote a single chapter to them like that. I felt at the time that the most important part of the career, because it's the part that established his reputation as a country music legend, and also the part where he tended to interact most directly outside of country to pop music and rock music generally, was his capital years. So that's you know, basically like 65 to, to uh, 76 or 77. I focused most on that part of his repertoire and didn't do as much with MCA years, which is the rest of the 70s, and then his Columbia 80s, didn't do much with it all. He released three more albums after my book came out, uh, including a, a, another duet album with Willie Nelson. And so I always felt like, boy, I wish I could have got all that stuff in there. And there's plenty of other little small things I wish I could have got in along the way as well. Every year in April, after Merle died, so around his birthday, the same day, I would write Casey Cottrell at the University of Texas Press and just say, if there's ever a chance to do a new version of that book, 
I would love to do it. Finally, to my surprise, Casey took the bait and said, you know, I think we could do this. What would you want to add? I laid it out and they agreed. And so as soon as I can get that done, then I think it'll be coming out. But that's still uh, realistically uh, probably a couple of years away from being on shelves or downloadable. You should let us know and you should certainly ask for a release date of April 6th or 7th, whichever date it was. Very, very clever. Well, thank you, David. You're a fountain of information on country music, Merle Haggard and everything, and we've really enjoyed our conversation with you. Well, thank you so much for reaching out. I really enjoyed it. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music-books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.